continue by speaking to you about the harvest. This video that I just showed, I showed it several years ago. And I felt then, and I still feel today, it's one of the most accurate portrayals of an unbeliever's thoughts. What she confesses is accurate to the mindset of many unbelievers. I had many of those same thoughts prior to my salvation experience. You see, for 36 years, I was never approached with the gospel in a way that was compelling to me or through a concern for my life. I'm sure my lifestyle and my appearance led many who ever thought about approaching me to believe I wasn't an approachable subject, that I would most likely be one of rejection based upon my conduct. Long-haired, rock and roller, foul language, tough guy attitude, beer drinker, poor side of town resident, unemotional, skeptical, wounded man that I was. But in May of 1996, a very special lady, an employee of mine who was burdened and overrun with joy, which she publicly confessed was a result of her relationship with Jesus Christ, decided to tell me. She decided to approach me. She apparently saw me as no one else had ever saw me. And without fear or condescending approach and with true compassion for me, she planted a seed in my life that day that grew to the point that nine months later, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. She first built a relationship with me, unjudgmental. Then she prayed for me and prayed for an opportunity to share her faith with me one day, which well, led to God showing her a vision of me which she was more than willing to share with me and could because of the relationship that was already in place with me. She came boldly into my office that morning and said, God showed me a vision of you last night. I'm not sure whether you were singing or you were preaching, but you were standing in a church behind a pulpit. And my response was, I began to laugh. I said, yeah, right, sure. Helen, me? I don't think so. Her response with a big smile, not one of frustration or with feeling of rejection, she laughed too, and she pointed her finger at me and said, you watch me, I'm telling you, I've seen it. I wasn't offended or repulsed. Actually, I was more intrigued than ever. You see, I believe she was serious. Even though I thought it was impossible, I sensed her compassion for me. That's why the question this young lady on this video in her portrayal of unbelievers poses, I feel is so important. When she says, so when's it going to happen? When are you going to tell me? And I have often wondered if Helen would have never told me, would I be standing here tonight? But I don't have to question why I'm standing here today, telling and challenging this congregation with the same question when are you going to tell them? Because I personally know the impact it can make in somebody's life. When you take the time to truly be a witness for Jesus Christ, it can turn a long hair, beard drinking, rock and roller with a foul mouth and a skeptical attitude into a blood-bought child of God, saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Praise the name of the Lord. Because someone cared enough for me to tell me without fear or rejection, but in confidence in whom they believed in and knew what God did for them, he could do for me. And church, there are millions more who are just like me who need to be told, you too once were a sinner. But the question they are asking is, when are you going to tell me? I may reject you. I may laugh at you. But who knows what it will eventually do for me?
to know someone cared enough to tell me. It is well documented that those who claim no religious affiliation are on the rise. Between 2007 and 2014, this group of people self-identifying as having no religious affiliation whatsoever jumped from 16.1% to 22.8% of American population. So with the 2018 census showing 327 million people now live in the United States, that would mean 22% of the United States, which would be nearly 72 million people, have no religious affiliation at all. So when are we going to tell them, when is it going to happen? You see, we must be a soul-winning church. A church that is not about soul-winning is nothing more than a building with a sign projecting a false hope. Being who you claim to be is the proof you believe what you say. Soul-winning is a passion of mine, and it should be of every Christian. How can they hear unless we tell them? Now, let me ask a few questions just to provoke this point. Don't raise your hand. Just self-examine your honest answer. How many of you have unsaved loved ones? How many have friends, neighbors, or co-workers who are unsaved? How many have never witnessed to them? How many of you have given up on them? How many of you know people you feel there is no hope of them ever being saved? How many of you are uncomfortable in sharing Christ? How many of you feel inadequate? How many of you would say, I don't know how? How many of you think you have to have three diplomas and a doctorate degree to witness effectively? And how many think it's just the pastor's responsibility? If you would have had to raise your hand to any one of those questions, then you need to listen closely tonight. To be a soul-winning church, you must talk about witnessing. And I hope tonight that we can change some things, some misconceived mindsets. I hope that we can build your confidence, help you to understand for Christians, soul-winning should be a lifestyle. We're not to become a Christian to see what we can get out of the kingdom of God, but to see what we could give to the kingdom of God. And the greatest thing is, of course, to become a disciple and share the gospel to a lost and to a dying world. We are commissioned by Jesus Christ in what is known as the Great Commissions in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of this age." I'm on a mission from God to win souls to the kingdom of God, to make sure people have the same opportunity that I had to hear the gospel, the good news, the message of hope. But not one of us can win them all. Every single believer has been commissioned to do your part. I like to tell my starfish story, where a man was at a beach when a great storm had arose, causing the waves of the ocean to wash ashore thousands of starfish onto the beach. And upon the man seeing them, he knew if he didn't try to save them and throw them back into the water, many of them would die. His wife, upon seeing him frantically make an effort to save them, she hollers at him and says, Honey, you can't save them all. And the man reaches down and picks up one of the starfish in his hand. And he hollers back, Honey, you're right, but I can save this one. And I say to every one of us, You can't save them all, but there is that one you can at least try to save. Everybody, and I mean everybody, deserves the same chance I got and you got to hear the gospel. And why is that? 
because he died for all. He died for whosoever will. We're here all, all the time. No one wants to hear the gospel. I disagree with that. I think it's a cop-out. I think the real problem is we aren't telling people anymore. Our problem with spreading the gospel is not so much no one wants to hear. It's we don't have enough people who want to share it. Jesus told us in Luke 10 and 2, the harvest truly is great, but the labors are few. So why don't we witness? For many, they're afraid to. Why? Some say for fear of offending someone. If when you present the gospel, it's offensive, you should examine how are you presenting it. How you present and represent the gospel is of great importance. Are you browbeating? Are you condemning? Are you being self-righteous? There is only one way to present the gospel, and that is out of love. Out of love is the key to it all. Any other approach could be offensive. When I was approached, I can tell you it was out of love, and it was not offensive to me. It was a sincere burden for my life and what was best for me. The greatest approach today for witnessing is by far building relationships with people to where they will give you the opportunity to share with them. John Maxwell said it best, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. You see, traditional evangelism is telling the message before you do. But servanthood evangelism is doing the message before you tell. I agree with the servanthood approach because it was Jesus said he came to serve. He would sit with them, he would feed them, and then he would share with them. It was all relational. When I was approached, the individual that spoke to me lived what she was speaking and had built a relationship to where I was willing to listen. And although I didn't respond right then to what I was told, a seed was planted into my heart, which led to me accepting Christ. Another reason many don't witness for fear of rejection. Let's face it, we hate rejection. But you'll never be rejected to the degree Christ was rejected. But it didn't stop him from doing the will of the Father. We have to understand something. Some will reject, but quit taking it so personal. There was a time you probably didn't want to hear it. There was for me. For many, you will just be planting a seed. Someone else may come by and water it. Someone else reap. Paul stated this in Luke 8 and 11. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. He was quick to point out, although I did one thing and Apollos did another, that they did it together as one. They were in this thing together, that there was no one greater for one act or the other because all glory should be given to God. He's the one who gives the increase. No one comes to God unless the Spirit draws. So you must understand the process to sow winning. It's a lot like farming, and you farmers ought to truly understand this. The ground has got to be prepared. You've got to sow into good ground. Then there has to be a seed planted. Then it has to be nurtured and watered. Then guess what you get? You get a harvest. You don't put a seed in the ground and get a crop the same day. If so, there'd probably be a whole lot more farmers. There is a process and a labor involved in soul winning. There's a lot of care and concern that goes into it. And as believers, we have a tendency to understand reaping and sowing only when related to consequences of sin or to prosperity. When in all, the principles should be related also to the harvesting of souls. If you plant seed into the harvest of men and women, you're going, to have, you're going to have a harvest. What we want to always do is plant and harvest in 30 minutes. And if we don't get a crop, we're done. We want to walk up to a total stranger and ask, do you know Jesus? If they say no, and I don't want to hear a word you got to say about it, we're done. But the chances are we didn't choose good soul. 
We didn't work the ground. We didn't plant the seed or nurture it. Because when you can walk up to a stranger and they do accept, it means their heart was already ripe and you're reaping what you didn't sow. We want to reap a harvest without sowing. We give up too quickly. And we shall reap if what? If we faint not. If we don't get weary in well-doing. <clears throat> we are commanded to go and teach and make disciples. And the greatest word in that is, is that little two-letter word there. Go. It's an action word. If you don't go, you'll never know. And I, too, be, believe being filled with the Holy Ghost is important to be an effective witness. Acts 1 and 8 says, you shall receive power if the Holy Ghost has come upon you. What is the power for? You shall be my witnesses unto me in both Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the othermost part of the earth. You are given power to witness effectively. But let's address another question. Why do we have so much trouble getting people to receive Christ? I believe one major cause is people who are unsaved are not judging Jesus by who he truly is, but by who his followers are. If you were to judge Jesus by Judas Iscariot, what would you think? Judas was greedy. Judas was a traitor. Judas was after money, money, money. Aren't you glad the early church didn't judge Christ by one Judas Iscariot who was willing to sell out his ministry for money? Well, what if the church judged Jesus by Peter? What would you say? Maybe this. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I seen that preacher standing by the fire that night, and he was warming himself up, and you ought to have heard him cursing. Aren't you glad the early church didn't judge all believers in the church by Simon Peter, who denied Christ not once, but three times and had to repent? There are too many people who are claiming to be Christians, but they're living ungodly lifestyles in front of sinners. If you're... If, if you are going to have a hard you're going to have a hard time if you're doing this being an effective witness for Christ. If there is someone in here tonight and you're unsaved, please don't judge Jesus by one man's action. You see, I like to tell my pig story to unsaved people whose favorite excuse as to why they don't come to church is we're just a bunch of hypocrites. A pastor moves into a rural area and takes over a little small country church. And he wants to go out into the community and get to know the people and invite people to church. So he goes out one day and he heads down the road and he comes upon a house and this man that lived there had a pig farm. And he was known for raising some of the best pigs in the country. He won the state fair every year. So the pastor goes up and knocks on the door and Earl comes to the door and says, can I help you? He says, yes, I'm the new pastor. I'm down at the church now. And I have come by simply to invite you and your family to come to church. So we'd like to see you maybe this Sunday. He goes, I don't think so. He says, why would you not want to come to our church? He said, because there's nothing but a bunch of hypocrites that go there. There's all just a bunch of hypocrites. He said, well, I beg to disagree with you. I don't believe they're all hypocrites. Now, we may have one that maybe that's a bad apple, but I don't believe they're all hypocrites. He said, hey, when I pull in the yard, I notice you got all these fine-looking pigs over here. But in this little pen over here, though, you got one pig. A little scrawny dude, man. He don't look like no state champion pig. He's pretty scrawny, and he's, he's about to drive and blow away. He goes, yeah, every once in a while I get one, bad one, that doesn't, but that doesn't reflect the whole flock. He said, I want to buy your pig. He said, why would you want to buy that scrawny pig for? He says, well, I want to buy your pig, then I'm going to take it uptown. I'm going to show the whole town this is the kind of pigs you raise. He said, well, you can't do that. You can't take one pig and judge my whole herd by one scrawny pig. He said, well, that's the same way I feel about the church. You can't judge my whole church about one bad apple. 
He said, they're not all hypocrites. My point is, in this day and time we live in, there are too many people claiming to be Christians, but their daily walk does not add up to a Christ-like life. They're hanging out in back rooms of places of employment. They're listening and laughing at dirty jokes. They're hanging out in the break rooms, gossiping along with everyone else about everyone in the factory. They're going into places of businesses with bad attitudes, mad at the world. They get mad at the checkout lines at Walmart and start cussing. It's happening all the time, and we wonder why they don't want to hear about Jesus from us. We respond to circumstances with ungodly attitudes. I don't care. She made me mad. I don't care. They shouldn't have overcharged me. I'm not tipping her. They took too long to get my food. You know, these things are happening. So what people are doing is judging Christ by people who claim to be his followers but don't have a true walk with him. One of the weaknesses we have in the body of Christ is there are people who come to the altar, make Jesus their Savior, but not Lord of their life. They simply just want to have what I call fire insurance. They're people who want to get saved, want to be forgiven, want their name wrote down in heaven so they can go to heaven when they die. But once they come to the altar and repent it, they go and live like they always have. And they show no fruit. They show no development in God, no interest in the Bible, no interest in attending Sunday school, no interest in being disciple. They have never made Jesus Lord of their life. They still want control. I tell you, in churches across the world, there are people who do not have the fruit of the Spirit working in their life. And what is the fruit of the Spirit according to Galatians 5 and 22? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. I believe more people are not getting saved because they are judging Christianity by people who claim to be Christians, but their claims and their actions don't confirm their conversions. You ever heard this statement when witnessing? When someone rejects salvation, hey, I'm just as good as him or her, and then they will say the name of somebody. See, we have a mixed-up view of Christianity today. We have sinners who think you don't have to be perfect before you, they think you have to be perfect before you get saved. But yet we have Christians who think you don't have to be all that good. And what unsaved people really want to see is a real man or a woman of God who really lives what he says he believes. Now, we're not perfect. But if you stumble, you should apologize if you have offended someone, say, I'm sorry, I did not act right. I did not do right. And as a Christian, though, I repent and I ask God to forgive me. And I'm going to try my best to never make that mistake again. We need to be true soul winners. <clears throat> we need role models. The, role, the world is full of them. Everyone wants to, one wants to talk like them. Everyone wants to dress like them. Everyone wants to eat what they eat. Everyone wants to drink what they drink. That's why we need Christian role models. We need people like, many of you remember, Sister McWilliams. She said it was a lifestyle. They want Christians who are genuine. They may persecute you at work for being a Christian, but when they see they can't change you, can't get you to do what they do, can't get you to use profanity, can't get you to cheat on your time card, can't get you to lose your temper, can't get you to listen to their dirty jokes, then when they need help, guess who they go to? The one they have confidence in. I've seen it a thousand times, and often it was in secret. We have to understand people aren't getting saved because they don't truly know who Jesus is. They don't know of his unconditional love. 
They don't know the price he paid for their sins. They don't know that he'll never leave them or forsake them. They don't know that they can cast their cares upon him because he cares for them. They don't know that he left the splendor of heaven to die for them. They don't know that he's faithful and just to forgive. They don't know they can wash him white as snow. They don't know they can pray to the Father and he will answer. They don't know that he's predestined greatness for their lives. They don't know that by his stripes they're healed. They don't know that he's their high tower and their refuge. They don't know that their sins are cast in the sea of forgiveness. They can't understand that he can give you peace that surpasses all understanding that the joy of the Lord will be their strength, that he is Jehovah Jireh, their provider. They need to know who Jesus really is. Because if they knew him, they would run to him and not from him. And the way they get to know him is when they see him in us. The scripture says, how can they hear unless a preacher or a messenger is sent? Don't tell me he can give me joy if I see you all down and depressed. Don't tell me he can change my heart. If you blow your cool as you always have for the last 10 years, I've known you. See, most people who are Christians, if asked, would say one of the number one burdens they have, it would be for my lost loved ones to get saved. And rightfully so. But it won't work if you're not showing Christ to them. A girl called me one time. She said, my sister is always telling me I need to get saved. But yet she blows up and starts cussing me every time we have an argument. It won't work, church. We must represent the gospel in a way that brings understanding to the lost. Proverbs says, the man that wanders from understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. And the point is, when people don't have a spiritual knowledge and understanding, they remain in the condition of spiritual death. They have no way of bringing themselves out of this unless they receive biblical, godly information. How can they believe in him whom they have not heard? Unsaved people have no knowledge of the word. Too many have no information. So let me give you three main reasons people aren't getting saved. One is no information. Two is a lack of information. And three is misinformation. People who have no information have questions that have never been answered. It was Nicodemus who goes to Christ with the question, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus gives him the answer. And Jesus says, Barely, but I said to you, you must be born again. And it's Nicodemus who replies, How can a man enter into his mother's womb again? You see, he didn't have the information on how to be born again. He thought, Born again, how? From the mother's womb? And some are not being converted because they have, no, have so many questions without any answers. And many times, no one has the answer for them. We're to be ready to give an answer. We've got to have the Word of God buried in our hearts. If it's not in here, it can't come out of here. You may not be able to quote the whole Bible. You may not be able to explain the book of Revelations or tell them the history of the Roman Empire or what happened to the dinosaurs. But as a Christian, you should definitely know the plan of salvation, how to lead someone to the Lord. Begin by telling them your story. Tell them the ABC plan. Admit, believe, and confess. Having no information is detrimental to you witnessing and them accepting I encourage every single one of us to work on it and learn it. Learn it before you learn anything else. It'll be more valuable and useful to you and those around you than anything else. Because the Word of God is the infallible Word of God. It has all the answers. And number two, misinformation. They hear things about Christians and churches that are not true. And we as Pentecost top the list of war stories and misconceptions. A little boy goes to church with his neighbors and he gets saved. Excited, he goes home eager to tell his unsaved day. Dad, hey, Dad, I got saved. 
Dad replies, that's nice. Where at? The little Pentecost church on the corner. The dad replies, that ain't where those snake handlers are, is it? Misinformation. Misinformation about Pentecost. Things are said such as being slain in the spirit of the devil. Misinformation. Gossip. Slandered. Sadly, many times going out from disgruntled members. People getting mad at the church or a church member go home and complain to their unsaved husband. Yet they want him to get saved. Then Christmas comes around, and they invite their husband to the drama. He won't come, and they can't understand why. Go to work on Monday complaining how loud the worship was Sunday. Then ask him to come on Easter, and you get a response, no, I don't think I will. I'm going somewhere else. I remember you said the music is so loud in your church, and I can't stand loud music. Because of misinformation, people won't go to certain churches or listen to certain preachers. Misinformation can lead to death. People have got to hear the Word of God before they can be convicted, be convicted by the Holy Spirit. There is a process for people to be converted. The Spirit has to draw them. No one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. They have to hear the Word of God. Then conviction settles in their heart. Then they repent and ask God into their heart. And to repent means to be godly sorrowful, to turn away from their sin. The point is we've got to get information to them. We've got to share the goodness of God with them and not the flaws of people. Give them good information. Folks, the gospel is the good news. It in no way should be associated with bad news. Spend more time talking about God, how great he is, instead of spending all your time talking about so-and-so in the church or church conflict. You'll never get them wanting to come to church if you don't even like it yourself. And as I said earlier, they will judge Christ by you too often. We must put all the focus on him because he can stand on his own. I know what I'm talking about. I heard some war stories about the church when I was still a sinner. Here I was a sinner man. And I would hear something and I would think, that happens in the church? Wasn't nobody telling me how great God was. The only one to tell me what was going on with, with Brother Bobby and Sister Betty in their church or how they were mistreated by their church. For 36 years, folks, no one person had made a concerted effort to tell me about Christ. We got to give them information, good information. Put a tape of the gospel in their hand. Bring them to a salvation drum. Take them to a Christian movie. Invite them to church. Give out tracts. Give them books. But there is nothing better than your own testimony. We've got to be creative in our methods because the word of God is seed according to Mark 4. The seed of God's word has to get in their heart before that person comes to the knowledge of the truth and be convicted by the Holy Spirit. As I said earlier, the most effective way is to build a relationship, share the gospel, Encourage them to, be, to come and be discipled. So to present the gospel effectively, you must have information. People have to hear about Jesus, what he did for your life, what he can do for their life, and how that he loves them. They have to hear the plan of salvation, allowing the Holy Spirit to draw them so they can be saved. Let's look at the excuses of sinners when you begin these. These will be at the forefront. There are many, but five of them we will address quickly. We must be prepared to deal with them. Number one, they're offended. One of the number one reasons people use, they've been hurt by a Christian, by a church, or a minister. Even people who have backslidden say the same. I used to go until, 
Notice it's always someone else's fault. It amazes me they're willing to miss heaven because of someone else's absurd. <clears throat> they aren't Jesus. Jesus didn't hurt you. Proverbs says, once a person has been offended, they are harder to win than a walled city. Some of the most petty things over a seat, over a color of the carpet, not getting to sing, so-and-so didn't speak to me. Then some not-so-petty stuff in the church, fornication in the church, gossip and slander, heresy being preached. What's your answer to them? Are you prepared to face them? They're wounded, and they need healing. They got to hear about the love of God and turn their focus on him and not man. They have to understand Christ was the only perfect one, that although we're saved, we aren't perfect. Hypocrites. Too many in the church. Hypocrite is someone who has two faces. The Bible tells us in Jude, people have gone the way of Cain, the way of Korah, and the way of Balaam. Well, Cain murdered his brother in the name of religion. Korah started a rebellion against Moses, and Balaam was a compromiser. And my point is, there's always been and always be people in the church who stabbed their brother in the back like Cain, caused trouble and rebellion like Korah, will be compromisers like Balaam. We have trouble admitting it exists, but it does. And I'd like to say to people who say this about too many hypocrites, forever Judas Iscariot you find, you will find 11 others who are serving God faithfully. And then, of course, tell them the pig story. See, too many counterfeits in Christianity, they say. Too many pretending to be something they're not. Well, here's something you can tell them. You know what? If there is a counterfeit, then there means there has to be a real one. You won't see $3 counterfeit bills. Why? No one's made them. You can only counterfeit something that is real. So if they're constantly counterfeit Christians, then there has to be real ones. Or tell them, say, you know, they counterfeit money all the time, don't they? Do you know you may possibly have a counterfeit bill in your pocket? So to be sure you don't have any, you need to reach in your wallet and you need to throw all of your money away. Of course, they will say to you, are you stupid? I'm not going to throw away my money because of a few counterfeit bills. And you say, no more stupid than for people not to go to church because there's a few counterfeits there. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to let someone who doesn't walk the walk and talk the talk stop me from going to church or heaven. Or four, they simply like the sin that they're in. They're living it up. They're enjoying themselves. They need to know that in the beginning, sin fascinates. But in the end, it assassinates. That sin only has pleasure for a season. Their favorite line, when I get it all together, I'm going to go. Well, tell them the truth. You'll never get it that good. Tomorrow, tomorrow, they say. That's the biggest lie of the enemy. You got time. Well, our graveyards are full of people who weren't allowed very much time. Teenagers. Young people, 20 to 30 years old, who died young. That's why it generally takes a tragedy to break them so God can get their attention. And you have to be prepared to step into their life at that point and offer them hope. They don't need a I told you so message. They need you to show them love and compassion. You see, death is a messenger. It speaks loudly. A lot of people hear the message of salvation for the first time at a funeral. You have to be ready to share your love and Christ's love for them when they are hurting. It's an opportune time to tell them the truth. They will listen to them at no other time. 
And then there's those that feel they have no need for salvation. I live a good moral life. I'm as good as any Christian I know. I don't drink, smoke, cuss. I'm a good dad. I'm a good husband. I pay my bills. I'm on the school board. And that's more than some Christians can say. Outside of offended people, good moral people are hard to win. So what do you say? You have to enlighten them to the word and, and not in an offensive way. Out of love, remember, build a relationship. You have to share with them that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that there's only one way to get to heaven. You must be born again. And that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That we're all born into sin because of Adam's sin. Make them knowledgeable about eternal life. Salvation is not only for poor and needy, it's for the rich as well. They must be told they are in need of a Savior, that everything on this life is temporal. Now let's talk about loved ones and friends. We have to ask, why won't they convert? Some of the hardest ones to lead to Christ. What hinders them? You have to find out and focus on it, and you have to minister to it appropriately, out of love. There's times you have to get bold with people. Just make sure you got the relationship in place where they understand you're doing it because you love them, not because you're judging them. And you have to be consistent. Some are controlled by seducing spirits, by addictions, by past hurts. For many, they're angry at God. They were in a car wreck and they're crippled now. Why, God? Prayed for a loved one to be healed, didn't happen. Why, God? Lost their house in a tornado. Why, God? Angry, bitter. They need answers and they need love. Why do they not convert? Is it no information, misinformation, too many unanswered questions, or is it spiritual bondage? We have to know them well enough to find out why. Why? So when you pray, you can pray against the hindrance. See, we're often we're guilty of praying our little two-minute prayers. Well, you know, Lord, Jim ain't saved. Please save him. Amen. Well, Bill's father's not a Christian. I pray he'll come to church. Can I say something about that? We should want every individual to come to church. But don't follow a misconception. We pray more for people to come to church than to be saved. This is a great place for them to get saved. But it's not the only place. There's nothing that says it has to be in a church for it to be real. It's real in here and it can be real out there. If you pray and ask for forgiveness and ask the Lord to be your Savior, and you confess Him as Lord of your life, whether in a bathroom at work or at a school lunchroom, it's just as real. Hey, get them saved, and they will want to come to church. Now, let me ask some more questions to provoke your thoughts. How often are you really burdened for your loved ones? Do you just pray for them in phases? Every once in a while when it crosses your mind and you pray your two-minute prayer, now I lay me down to sleep... Lord, save my family. Amen. Do you ever really get a heavy burden? How often do you pray for them? Or are you so disappointed in them you can't pray for them anymore? How often do you plant seed in them? I'm not asking how many times do you beg them to come to church. I mean sharing the love of God through words and action, through example, through kindness. Here's three mistakes we can make. One, thinking they can only be saved in church. So we make no effort to witness, we just invite. Many times because we want them to hear about Christ and either we aren't prepared to tell them or don't want to or it's the pastor's job. Or two, we think we've got to get down to where they're at. 
No, you've got to go where they're at and bring them back up to where you're at. I believe we reach out to our unsaved loved ones and friends and fellow workers by building relationships. Then the door of opportunity will open. The third mistake, not ministering to their need. Jesus had something to say about this. He said, when you feed them, when you clothe them, when you visit them, when you do it unto the least of these, you do it unto him. Don't say you have the love of God in your heart when you shut up the bowels of compassion. Don't just go to a family living in poverty with hungry children and tell them they need Jesus. Feed them, then tell them. Let's talk about witnessing to men, soon to be the hardest to reach. It's important for all to be saved, but let me share something about winning a man that is very significant. Statistics say, lead a woman, a wife, or a mother, you have a 17% chance of winning the family. You lead a child, you have a 30% chance of winning the family. But if you lead a man, you have a 93% chance of winning the family because he's to be the priest of the home. You have to have a plan to build a relationship with someone you're trying to lead to the Lord. You know who everyone of you ought to be trying to immediately win to the Lord? Everyone you have a relationship with. Peter was converted on a fishing boat. Men, take sinners fishing. Nicodemus convicted while sitting under a tree. Take them hunting. I witnessed to a Dr. Pepper salesman for about three months, who only for him to come in one Saturday afternoon to the store and say, I listened to what you said, and while I was hunting this morning, sitting under the tr my deer stand, I gave my heart and life to the Lord. This is what we're talking about. Use wisdom. Don't ask a cowboy, though, to an opera. Same with the ladies. Take them shopping, shopping, or shopping. I'm at a loss for what else is they do. What else do they do besides that? There ought to be more women saved at the mall than anywhere else. <laughs> Says Sister Jenny. People aren't as dumb as you may think. They can tell whether you're truly concerned for them or just trying to get a feather in your hat by your actions. Folks, we're not out wrestling with them, trying to get them to say uncle. We are trying to convince them we really care. People have to experience the life of being a Christian, and we have to show them Christ through our lives. Show them that being a Christian isn't drudgery. Christians can have fun too. The gospel is not to be heavy. There is joy in being a Christian, that we are humans, that we do have social lives. Once they encounter the life of a true Christian, they'll want to become involved. They will want to hear what you've got to say today. And some people are very timid about large crowds to walk in a building this large or this many people. So you may have to start with a one-on-one, -on -one, having coffee with them, going to breakfast with them, going golfing with them. Personal relationships are the key to witnessing. And the three ways most are one, one by a family member. After I got saved, my wife got saved, my three kids got saved, my mom got saved. Christian influence. Second one, someone they respect. Unsaved people will only listen to those whom they respect. That's how I heard. I gave someone I respected the time to tell me. And respect is earned. Three, one in faith services. Revivals, dramas, special service. They must be invited by family or friends. They won't come alone. Let's spend time winning them outside the church 
and they'll want to come into the church. Make sure you talk on their level. Don't hammer them with our Pentecostal lingo. Man, last night, six people were slain in the spirit. John Doe prophesied. Tongues went out three times. And Brother Bob danced on the back of the pews and never fell and got hurt. That won't mean much to a sinner, someone who doesn't even know who Jesus is yet, let alone all this other stuff. When Jesus saw the woman at the well drawing water, he talked to her about water to help her better understand. To the guys who were fishing, he said, I will make you fishers of men. He talked to people about what they were familiar with, sheep, wheat, tares, farming. Find out their likes and their dislikes, their sports, cars, sewing, food. Take time to build a relationship and then the doors will open and minister to their needs. If sick, pray for them. James 5 says, if any sick is among you, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Minister to the need. Those that are hurt, going through divorce. Those who are hungry. Those who are crippled or wounded. Help them, love them. Do you know that unless raised in church, 70% of people converted are converted during a crisis. And that is why you have to have a relationship and be there for them at those times. Taking advantage of the open doors when they're ready to listen. And we must pray for our unsaved loved ones. You must pray with a burden and you must pray for a burden. A woman asked an evangelist to pray for her husband to be saved. He was a truck driver. He said to her, I will, but why don't you pray? She got mad at his response. But she did pray that night. And the truck driver, while on the road, woke up at 3 a.m. Burdened, he called home that night. There was no answer. He became afraid, so he hurried home. He arrived home at 6 a.m., only to walk in the door and overheard his wife praying for him to be saved. And he knelt down beside her and got saved. We must pray a prayer of agreement. Jesus said, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask for, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Five ladies committed to pray a prayer of agreement for their lost husbands. They prayed between the hours of 10 and 4 for six days. Four out of five were at church Sunday. Three out of four got saved. Lord, touch my family is not specific enough. Call them by name. If they're not saved, Pray God will place someone in their lives. Pray for a kingdom connection for them. A principle of reaping and sowing, if you have an unsaved loved one and you're not getting anywhere with them, spend your time trying to reach someone else's loved one and God will send someone to reach yours. Personal relationships is my whole point. Develop them and then share Christ. Stop thinking there's no hope for them. I'm sure many said that about me. Please approach someone. Because if you don't, here's what happens. Fred somebody. Thomas everybody. Susan anybody. And Joe nobody were neighbors. But they were not like you and me. They were odd people and most difficult to understand. The way they lived was a shame. All four belonged to the same church. But you would not have enjoyed worshiping with them. Because... Everybody went fishing on Sunday or stayed home to visit with friends. Anybody wanted to go to church, 
but was afraid somebody wouldn't speak to him. So guess who went to church? Nobody. Really, nobody was the only decent one of the four. Nobody did the visitation. Nobody worked on the church building. Once they needed a Sunday school teacher, everybody thought anybody would do it. And anybody thought somebody would do it. And you know who did it? That's exactly right. Nobody. It just so happened, though, a fifth neighbor moved into the neighborhood, an unbeliever. Everybody thought somebody should try to win him for Christ. Anybody could have made an effort, and you probably know who finally won him. Nobody. It's up to us. If we leave it up to somebody or everybody or anybody, chances are nobody will do it. I want to encourage you tonight. Pray for a burden. They're all reachable. Don't be afraid of rejection. At least plant a seed. Don't browbeat. Do it out of love. Folks, there's millions who haven't heard, and it's our responsibility. We're to be the light before them. We're to be disciples and ministers. We're to love thy neighbors as thyself. So let's take these hard times of social and economic woes and look at it as the greatest opportunity to share Christ. Let's just not be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And God has commanded us to go and preach the good news. People are hearing so much bad news. They're looking and they're seeking, yet we got the answer. You know, it won't be very much longer, and we're going to be doing our Christmas program. I'm not about the program as I am about the people. The program's nothing more than a bait or a tool. I'm more excited about the opportunity to walk out here on this stage and get a chance to share Christ with 5,000 people again as we have now for 10 years. Why? Because I was given the chance to know him and everyone else deserves the same opportunity. Because I'm not the same man I was before I was saved. I was changed. And I believe these people coming can be changed too. And I believe they want to hear about Christ. Every year, some three to 500 people pray the sinner's prayer. We have a responsibility to tell them. So when's it going to happen, they are asking. Now I'm going to close with my text. Yeah. I saved it till the end for a purpose. Usually you read it when you begin. It's a parable Jesus tells of a man giving his servants instructions of who to invite to a great supper. It's referencing the marriage supper that all saints are going to attend one day, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus wants it to be full. After inviting the many to the supper, many made excuses why they wouldn't attend. He then sent the servants into the streets. And told them to bring back the poor and the lamed and the blind. And after doing so, the servants tell the master, we have done as you commanded. He said, but there's still more room. So the master gives a command, and this is my text, in Luke 14 and 23. Then the master told the servants, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be full. And that word compel means tell them of the importance of being at this supper. 
And that is what Jesus is saying today to his servants. Go outside these walls to the highways and the byways and the hedges and compel them to come in. Would you stand with me? I'm going to leave you tonight with the question that only you can answer. All of your friends, all of your neighbors, all of your loved ones and fellow co-workers are asking you, when are you going to tell me? When is it going to happen? There are millions that are waiting. I went to a conference one time. One of the greatest questions we were asked, Chuck was there. What would you do for the Lord if you knew you wouldn't fail? If you knew you wouldn't fail, asking someone to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you do it then? I want you to know something. If you ask anyone and tell them about Jesus and ask them if they want the Lord to come into their heart, if you can lead them to the Lord and they reject you, that is never a failure. That is you taking the responsibility that God has placed on you as a believer to share the gospel. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, in just a moment, I'm going to ask this congregation to pray. But before we pray, I want to talk to some people first. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, tonight you have heard. I've shared the gospel with you. I've shared it out of love. Hopefully a lot of it helped you to understand that we're just concerned for you, that people, we care for you as believers, that we want you to have the same opportunity we had we want your life to be changed as our life has been changed. And as I said, if you think you're going to get it all together one day and then you'll be ready, the truth is you never will be ready. And if you bought into the lie thinking I've got time, tomorrow, tomorrow, that's the greatest lie of the enemy. Because today is the day of salvation. You're not promised tomorrow. So I want to reach out to you. I'd be a poor preacher to preach a message like this and then not practice what I'm preaching. God loves you. The hardest part is making that first step and just coming to an altar like every single one of us have. But I'm inviting you right now, if that's you, and you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That thing that's tugging at you right now, that's the Spirit of the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit loving on you. Inviting you to come to this altar tonight and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. With every head bowed and every eye closed. No one's looking. Would you step out right where you are and come to this altar if you want to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior?
You say, I've heard it. I've heard tonight how much he loves me. Is there anyone before we move on? Here comes a precious young man right here. See, that's what's so great about the gospel. It's not just for the young or the old. It's for whosoever. Is there another? Another who would say, I want to know Jesus. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want a new life. I want to be born again. I want to start all over. Is there anyone else? Okay, then with every head bowed, then every eye closed, I want us to pray together based upon the message that I just told you. If you're not burdened for the lost, I want you to pray that God will give you the burden. And then if you're burdened for the lost, I want you to pray tonight, if you're sincere, for God to give you the opportunity to witness and make a commitment to God. You open the door, you give me the opportunity, God, and I will confidently share the gospel with whoever you put in my path. I want to pray, and I want you to pray. This is your personal commitment to the Lord tonight. Every single one of us has lost loved ones, friends, neighbors that are waiting for us to tell them. So if you would with me, pray with me and make a fresh commitment. Father, we come to you right now in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Father, I know on your heart are the unbelievers, those who are lost in their sin, God. I know that's your focus, God. Thanks to, to the point you sent your only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for the sins of this world, for my sins. And Father, in return, you're asking this body of believers to share our faith, to share Jesus with this world that needs answers. You've given us the answer. We've experienced it. God, I pray that we would all have a burden to share the gospel like never before. Now, God, I pray for opportunities. I pray for you to begin to open up opportunities for every single one of us to be able to speak to our loved ones and our friends and our neighbors, our community. Even if a total stranger, God, you give us an opportunity to plant a seed, to water a seed so that, God, you can give the increase and that the Holy Spirit will draw out their heart, God. I pray tonight, dear God, this message has spoke to our hearts. I hope we shared the concerns. I've tried to share it even from an unbeliever's perspective tonight, dear God, of what they're seeing, what their perspective is. But I've also tried to share the perspective of the church. Now it's our desire, dear God, to share the love of Christ. God put it in our hearts. Let it become the focus. In these last days, God, we are to be in the harvest fields.
So God, we pray tonight, send me. Send me, oh God, so that I can tell. When are we going to tell them? When is the time? Tonight we commit, God, that now, now is the time to share the gospel. And we make this commitment fresh and anew to you tonight, dear God, that we'll not have a fear of rejection. We'll no longer think we're inadequate. We'll have the power of the Holy Ghost that will empower us, God. You'll place the words in our heart, dear God, as we speak to others to share the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. And we give you the glory with a hand clap of praise. God bless you. You're dismissed.